today. I am here to give you the assurance that I have not forgotten you. If we want to see the new evangelization become more than just jargon, if we want to see it grow legs and gain traction and change the world, we have got to take seriously our responsibilities as husbands and fathers and especially as sons of God. I want to propose to you then that something that our world is desperately in need of in the midst of this crisis is Catholic Christian masculinity. If you want to be a good father, then bring your children to confession with you. I can't get there unless I become a man of ascesis, a man of asceticism, a man of training. A man not doing penance, a man not disciplined, he's not a man. You guys have upped your game. You know what, guys, I gotta say, I, I love this the concept of man show. Warning, the Catholic man show is about to begin. Welcome to the Catholic Man Show. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side, so raise your glass. Adam Minahan here in studio with the David Niles. Yo! And we have a very special guest. I'm super pumped to have Father Gregory Pine on the Catholic Man Show. Thanks so much for hanging out with us in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I had a chance to meet you actually about a month and a half ago in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Father Aquinas was kind enough to take me around and see and introduce me to a bunch of you guys, which was awesome, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just so happened to connect with you and said, hey, you said you're coming to Oklahoma and I tried to get your schedule to kind of move around so that way you can come hang out with us for, for an hour or so. Yeah. Um, and I'm delighted that it worked out. Uh, queued up a, a visit to one of the campuses that's uh, associated with the Thomistic Institute and it's just down the road. So what's not to love about a little stop in Tulsa? That's right. Living on Tulsa yeah. time. Mm. <laughs> a very delightful airport. Very well lit. Um, it kind of had the feeling of a nice grocery store. I mean that in no wise, like disrespectfully, but I very much like grocery stores, you know, so so very nice, like high vaulted ceilings, beautiful, delicious light. Everyone was pleasant. You know, it felt like the organic section, you know, <laughs> the organic <laughs> section is Ooh, kind of soothing all right. so, without the prices, you know, so yeah, yeah, great. yeah. You know what? <clears throat> I also really like our airport Yeah. Uh, because there's i've never in, it's very efficient. I, I know that there are lines at some times of the week mm. but generally speaking you can just walk into it yeah uh you go through security of course quite but, naturally but uh it's it's just very easy to fly yeah no that was sometimes i associate airports with like acute anxiety like i was i flew out of LaGuardia recently and they're rebuilding the whole thing and just getting from the rental car place to the actual terminal took like 35 minutes of just pure unadulterated terror and then i got there and then there were like 350 people in line for security and i was like sweet christmas right um so i went to the delta lady and i was like number one i'm an idiot number two please have mercy on me she's like oh yeah yeah just go through that place and that got wave you on i was like thank you so much uh, but the Tulsa, habit, the oh, the the perks of the habit. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was that, but maybe she just had mercy on me because I looked like a tall, haggard child. <laughs> but that's yeah, in that's, a cool habit. Exactly. Well, that helps. <laughs> yeah. So, 
You know what else is really good for traveling? A baby. Yes. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah. When uh, when my wife and I were flying to Rome like four years ago, uh, at the time our oldest was only five months old, and so she was wearing her you know you know baby carrier. And she'd be in line, and the people would see her, be like, "Oh, ma'am, come come over here." And they would just open a gate and let her go through. And I was thinking, she could have, that could be a fake baby. You don't, you didn't even look to see if that was a real baby, you know. Uh, but they didn't care. They just let her go right. Th- I think they like swabbed her, like, "Oh, there's no gunpowder on your hands, or you haven't built any bombs this morning." So you're good. So you're fine. <laughs> yeah. What, what is Meanwhile, that I'm back in, you know, like having to take my belt and shoes off, and. What hey, is that, a, that's my baby too, you know. I could have been wearing the baby. It's like, what is that, a hairdresser with a scope on it? It's all right, just right. go ahead and let it go. <laughs> anyway, so but, just keep that in mind, you know, like international flight, bring a baby. Okay, that seems mutually exclusive with the other things I've chosen <laughs> right. in my life, but I'll take it under consideration. Uh, Aquinas 101 is killing it right now. Hey, cheers. Yeah, Aquinas 101 is the most recent media venture of the Thomistic Institute for which I work. So the Thomistic Institute is based out of D.C. at the Dominican Alsa Studies. Started as a research institute for hosting conferences, and then four years ago we started this campus chapters program where students on university campuses can organize and uh, get sweet lectures in the Catholic intellectual tradition. And the students were like, hey, this is sweet, but how do I recommend this to my friends in a way that is compelling and well-animated and delightful? And we said, let's do it. So Aquinas 101 is a series of like 85 to 90 videos that introduce you to who St. Thomas is, the basics of his philosophy, and then takes you by the hand and walks you through the Summa. So we launched uh, late August, early September, and there are like 18,000, 19,000 people enrolled in the course. So you get little emails, not little emails, they're normal sized emails. And as much as they're digital, they're, they're no sized emails. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they, uh, they give you the video and then some course listening, like a podcast mm-hmm. curated for the, uh, for the thing. And then uh, some reading to kind of get you into Aquinas himself. So the, the response thus far has been really great and super generous. And we're really excited about it. And there's also an Ask a Friar feature on each, on each email. So if you have further questions, you can, you can follow up and I am that friar. So I've holy I've, cow! I know. The amount of emails that you probably receive. There are there are volume. That's a lot. It's a lot. That's yeah. a lot. But it's great because people are genuinely desirous of knowing things, especially things about divine eternity. It's fascinating. We haven't even gotten to those lessons, and they're like, "How does this work?" And I'm like, "Excellent question." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Aquinas 101, Aquinas101.com. Check it out. Sign it up. It's delightful. It's also free. So the price is right. Cheers. That is that is a good price. Mm, yeah. It's my favorite price, really. Also, you can subscribe to the Thomistic Institute podcast and Godsplaining. You just you started that as well. We did indeed, yeah. So the Thomistic Institute podcast is whenever we have events on campus, we record the lectures, clean them up, and then post them so that way you can consume at your leisure. And then Godsplaining is a venture of some friars at the House of Studies and beyond. And th- those are more kind of casual conversations. So the Thomistic Institute, uh, those are lectures usually geared for undergraduate audience who has an interest in philosophy and theology. A lot of people find it very accessible. But if you're looking for something that's a little more conversational about topics that are philosophical, theological, arts, culture, literature, etc., basically all things Catholic, then uh, God's Planning is a good place to check into. Also, maybe the best name for a podcast. Hey, cheers. That, that is a good, like, it, nice. It came to me during Vespers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, for those of you, who, for those people who don't know, Briefly, who is Father Gregory Pine? Who is Father Gregory Pine? I am a son of God. Um, let's see, I was born in Newtown, Pennsylvania, outside of Philly. Okay. I am the son of Barry and Regina, who are 
excellent people, and I have a couple sisters and a brother. My wife loves the name Regina. Mm, that's just so awesome. You know. yeah. yeah, and it comes with great nicknames like mm-hmm. Queenie, for instance, um, or Jean Jean the Dancing Machine. Uh, <laughs> you can save that for later. Uh, so yes, I grew up kind of uninterestingly. Uh, my sisters went to Steubenville, Franciscan University of Steubenville, so uh-huh. I followed in their stead. They also gave me sage counsel, being sage women. They said, your first year, don't date uh, because you will go to Steubenville. You will find a lot of beautiful Catholic women. You will want to date all of them simultaneously in a non-polygamous way. So you can figure that out. Um, and then you may start dating one and then you'll maybe date her for a while and then maybe you'll break up and then maybe you'll look around and realize you haven't made the best friends with other people because you spent your time with a lot, you know, just one person. Which is great. So um, I was like, okay, sage women, sage council, let's kick it. So I didn't. So you received that advice and were able to actually like take it. it Yeah. That's impressive. Well, they're like really wise women. And also it was like an honor challenge too. So Uh, it was like the combo factor. Okay. So without that, without the challenge, I wouldn't, I'd have been like, yeah, yeah, forget that. You're right. These are beautiful women. I'm going to date some of them. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So they appeal to me both as a man and as a prideful man. So that's a deadly combo. Nice. Uh, Yeah. So I went to Steubenville. I didn't date my first year. And then a professor from St. Louis University came to give a lecture about Aquinas on the nature of love. That professor was Eleanor Stump. And the talk just devastated me, just laid me waste. So I knew some things about the Lord and about the church and about church teaching, but it was all kind of like... Uh, eclectic, I suppose. Like, I knew this thing over here and that thing over there and blah, blah, blah. But I didn't really know how it hung together. And then she gave this exposition, which was evidently, manifestly, wise, well-articulated, precise, accurate, delicious, delightful, and corresponded with a lot of things that I myself had, like, hoped to learn or to express but never really had the resources for. So I was like, wow, this Thomas Aquinas fellow is boss. So I started reading him and about him. And it was actually a book about him uh, called The Quiet Light by Louis DeWall. So Saints, uh, Saint, Saint stories, basically for like a high school audience. So recommend them to people who like Saint stories for a high school audience. <laughs> um, and I just, I, I fell in love with the Lord as St. Thomas introduced him in a new way. So basically like the way that St. Thomas pursued holiness, I found incredibly attractive. And so I started telling people that I want to be a Dominican priest. I hadn't yet met one apart from Thomas. Uh, and then it worked out. So I entered upon graduating Let's see, I was ordained a priest in 2016, um, spent some time doing studies, and then was assigned at a parish in Louisville, Kentucky, St. Louis Bertrand, where I also taught at Bellarmine University, and then now I've been assigned to the Thomistic Institute for, you know, like a year plus. Right on. Yeah. Okay, and which brings you here? Which brings me here, yeah. So I was born, and then I lived, and then I was in Tulsa. (laughs) Yeah, you and I, our lives are so similar. Yeah, we are sympathetic in a a big way. (laughs) So um, we do three things on every episode here. Mm. Um, the first thing we do is you open a review and enjoy a manly beverage. Um, oh, nice. uh, we're to, here at the table. We have three beverages represented. We have everything from water, coffee, to I'm drinking a little Earl Grey. Nice. Um, I like Earl Grey tea because it cannot be oversteeped. Fascinating. It does not get gross. Doesn't get funky. when you leave the tea bag in and you just it's fine. Okay. Uh, that's all I have to say about Earl Grey. Okay. And, Which is perfect timing because it's the end of the segment. <laughs> yeah. That was also literally all I have to say about it. I think it's, I think it's good. Uh, so when we get back, we're going to jump into our topic. We're going to go right into the topic instead of a highlighted man gear. Correct. So much to talk about. So many things. Mm. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles here with Adam Minahan and Father Gregory Pine. Thank you for being here. We're talking today about studiositas. Nailed it. Studiositas. Studiositas. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Studiousness. He Bingo. basically speaks Latin. I yeah. basically speak a lot of a lot of languages. Basically. <laughs> Fundamentally. Radically. Yeah. No, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, okay. <laughs> basically, though. Because if you basically do something, that means you don't quite do it. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. And then if you boast about basically doing something, you're basically admitting to not being good at many things. Correct, which is part of my humility. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite comedians, he talked about overhearing a conversation on a train where a guy said, I'm really good at checkers, which is like saying I'm not very good at many things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but checkers, okay. <laughs> I got that locked down. Exactly. Yeah. Watch out for the triple jump. Oh, wow. oh the triple jump. Uh, you think you're doing good <laughs> until you get Game triple changer. jumped. <laughs> All right. So um, we're talking about studiosity today, uh, which we're going to get into. But before we talk about studying, essentially, mm-hmm. I think we should talk about knowledge. Yes. Um, there's a lot of weird correlations between knowledge and God that I don't that could be deep, deep rabbit holes that maybe we shouldn't go into, mm-hmm. you know, like when you, you know, or even just like sexuality, when the Bible uses the word, if you know somebody, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole unless we end up going down that rabbit hole, <laughs> because that could be, yeah, that could be a distraction. Uh, but which would not be exhibiting the virtue of st- right? I know. I just, I want to be virtuous. It's so, it's yeah. so hard to be sometimes. Yeah. Um, it's easier. Oh, good. Assuming <laughs> you make, not... assuming make progress, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, St. Thomas says it gets easier, someday. So. I hope to. I hope to actually, yeah, possess progress, and that's sufficient. Yeah. Uh, so, what is knowledge? Mm-hmm. Is it and is it worth attaining? Is is it worth? I mean, what is it? Why should we pursue it? Should we pursue it? Sure. Go. Dig. <laughs> so. Um, Let's let's do like a little Aristotelian distinction. Okay. Very simple, uh, not especially complex, but very helpful for ascertaining how knowledge is different from other claims. So he'll go through doubt, opinion, suspicion, knowledge, and belief as candidates for how we kind of interact with something that is potentially knowable. Okay. So you got things out there, and it's a matter of how our mind is attuned to them or how our mind is conformed to them. So he says in the case of doubt, our mind is suspended between two positions. Uh, So like your name is David, but the only person who's told me that is Adam. And this could be like a grand conspiracy Mm. um, of of potential deceit, like the Catholic man show and its focus on virtue could all be a subtle ruse for the undermining of Western civilization. (laughs) Right. So if, if I had like, if for instance, like you were sharpening a knife right now, um, and if there were just like a bunch of false things arrayed around this place, like lies, just patent lies that I could recognize, I would think like, well, he testified and they have this thing and people listen to it, but also there's all of this counter testimony and I could be suspended between two positions. Mm-hmm. That's doubt. Okay. Okay. Now, opinion is when you're inclined to one, but fear that the other might still hold water. Uh, but you still think you're kind of, you're inclined to this one and you, you offer it a kind of assent. Suspicion is like a low grade opinion. Uh, And then with knowledge, it's you know that the thing is the case. You have a certainty because you see it demonstratively. 
So in, in the classical understanding, it's that you have these premises and then you tease out a conclusion from the premises and then you have knowledge that such is the case, okay? So for instance, the classic example is all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. <clears throat> it's not something that you can call into doubt. You no longer fear that the opposite could be the case, namely that Socrates is immortal, all right? And here we're bracketing off considerations about eternal destiny. Um, <clears throat> so I see the thing through the premises that have been furnished to me, okay? Whether by experience or by yada yada. So to know something is to actually see the conclusion in the principles. It's a kind of seeing. So it's, it's not subject to doubt or opinion or suspicion. It's something that I actually can verify me mentally. Okay. Um, and then this is distinguished from belief. When you hold to an opinion or you hold to an assertion because of testimony. Okay. So somebody says that, uh, let's say that there's a Chipotle like down the street and to the left. All right. If you go back out to thus and such and then take a left on blah, 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 there's a Chipotle there. I believe that that is the case. I have not verified it but I can, um, yeah, like reasonably or rationally assent to that because I have no reason to think that you would deceive me. You're not into sending people on long um, wild goose chases in mm -hmm. search of good burritos. Okay. So that's just, I mean, that's like the basic Aristotelian foundation. And then to kind of drill down, like what is knowledge in a more embracing sense? Because that seems like a kind of anemic claim. Well, I think this idea that knowledge is a kind of seeing and that knowledge is a kind of conforming of our minds to the thing itself. So what happens when you know something is you apprehend something out there, okay, like that there is a picture of the Lord, okay? And then that takes up a kind of residence in my senses. So the shape and the color and the texture, blah, 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 they impress, that impresses itself upon me. And from that, I formulate a kind of image, a sense image of the thing. And then my mind has a both an active and a passive dimension. So the, the active dimension, the kind of light of the intellect, uses that sense image to draw forth from the passive dimension of our intellect a notion or a concept, or St. Thomas will say an intelligible species. You don't need to know the language of it. Just to say that we go from sensation to an immaterial notion of what the thing is right? And that our minds are capable of doing that because our minds have a kind of participation in the divine light. Hmm. Okay. And in so doing, then that becomes the lens through which we see reality. And then we re-engage with other instances of what we've encountered. And so Aristotle will say that the mind becomes the thing. So that intelligible species is like the form of the thing out there, but taking up residence in our mind, whereby we engage then with reality. So you become the thing known, and then your life is a matter of this embracing vision, a kind of panopticon, to use a strange term. Mm -hmm. um, and that what is out there takes up residence in you so as to form an interior culture. And you get built up by the things that you know because you kind of assimilate them into a human life, which is bent on calling each thing by its right name. So that's like a kind of, I don't know, a basic intro, I suppose. So that's very fascinating. Even the words, like the language you were using about how the mind becomes the thing and I'm not going down this rabbit hole, but like, once again, when you, the biblical sense of when person A knows person B, uh, you know, sexual intimacy, like to the two becoming one. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now we can move on nice. because <laughs> you just uh, had the, I just, I'm you had just, the itch and you just had to just like, barely scratch it. Yeah. Like we can move on. It's just fascinating. It you is. know, no, uh, it, definitely that and it, it's just, it's very cool because in many ways, the more we come to know about the world around us, you know, all, all of our 
the world is a sign that points to to God. And so the more we come to know about the world or about things, yeah. ultimately we're, we should be or can be extracting from those things more knowledge about God and who he is, who we are. Yeah. Um, and, and so let me ask you this. I'm ready. Knowledge, it, we can, in fact, know something. Because yeah. I know that there would be many people who would say, oh, but you... What you're doing is what you think you know is just just a really strong belief, mm. but you can't actually prove anything. You know, so where, where would Saint Augustine, I mean Saint Aquinas, come down on that issue of can we in fact know anything at all? How how he how would he decimate the enlightened philosophers? <laughs> yes, please do. That's a, that's a question. Okay, so uh, admitting to my ignorance of a lot of you know, enlightenment philosophy. Uh, so the characterizations that I give will be rough and ready and not especially charitable. But um, there is okay. this... It's a virtue, actually, to have a deficiency in enlightenment philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> so um, with... with So you can think here of, like, Descartes or Hume are the kind of classic examples, and then it comes to, I suppose, its perfection in Kant. But um, what you have with Descartes is this... Um, so it's a, a need for criteriology is what it's often called. Mm -hmm. So it's it's antecedent to epistemology. So epistemology is the study of how we know and what we know. And then criteriology is how we ground our knowledge. And so for Descartes, his fear is that you can't start with things that are extra mental outside of the mind, that you have to begin from what you can actually verify. And for him, that begins with the cogito ergo sum. Like, I think, therefore I am. So he can actually verify his mental states. And his mental states suggest or prove that there is a thinking subject. And from the thinking subject, then you can build out a world uh, and you get to extra mental things. Um, in the case of Hume, he calls into doubt the validity of our sensation in a different way. Uh, that The classic description concerns causality. So we cannot say that because A moves B, that A, that a causes the action in B. Rather, we associate those ideas um, and what's actually happening is a mental process whereby we draw that conclusion, but there isn't sufficient warrant because causality for him is not a verifiable thing. Hmm. And then with Kant, the, the main fear is that we don't actually have access to things. So there's this phenomenal noumenal split. Uh, so we only have, we can't get to the things in themselves, only those things as they present themselves in dialogue with the kind of interior structures of the thinking mind. So what we know is about the interaction of the appearance and us, and we can reason to the existence of certain, certain things based on this interaction, but to go and say that the thing is such for him is a bridge too far. Now, St. Thomas, I think we can derive benefit from, or a kind of consolation from just thinking how he starts the first way. So recall, he says, the first way is most evident. The first way begins from motion. For him, motion is a term that embraces changes of different sorts. So change in place, change in quality, change in quantity, even if you take it in its broadest sense, change in substance. But he just begins that proof with motion is evident to the senses. He just takes as given what senses render. So I think that for us, there's a kind of confidence that we can have in knowing that our senses actually give us something that we ourselves can trust. Uh, so yeah, I'll leave it with that. Okay, excellent. We're going to keep going right after the break. We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass.
Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. Sitting here with David Niles and Father Gregory Pine, talking a little bit about knowledge, the study, the virtue of studiositas. Ew, that was that was bad. That was good. That was great. Okay, I think yeah. it was good. It was okay. I mean, not like <laughs> you basically you basically speak Latin. I'm David Niles. And I... <laughs> okay, so basically, what we established right on the end of the last break is that we can know God exists. Yeah. Well, what we <laughs> what we established is that that what our senses give us is reliable. Mm-hmm. So Saint Thomas would say that it actually shows a deficiency. Uh, in the thinking subject to call into doubt sense experience. So St. Thomas knows that we can be deceived in our senses. Sure. Like he knows that, for instance, if we're sick, then sometimes all things taste bitter to us. Or if you put your oar in the water to paddle, you'll see the oar as if it were bent. Crazy, right? Yeah. So he knows these things, but he knows that by our reasoning faculty, we can make judgments about those um, biases that are introduced. But he thinks that to call into question our doubt in a thoroughgoing sense is actually insane. That's what I okay. That's how I feel. It's like if you're one of those people who thinks we have to doubt absolutely everything, and that you know it's possible that our whole existence is like an illusion. Yeah, uh, it's like I don't even really want to talk to you. Well, then you're either an academic philosopher <laughs> or a crazy person, right? <laughs> Wait. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, pursuit of knowledge is a good. It is a good. Okay, and ultimately in heaven. The pursuit will be over? So, oh, wow, dig. So the pursuit, of, let's start with the pursuit of knowledge is a good. Okay. Why? Okay. okay, let's just say why, and I'll be as brief as I know how. Okay. Why? Because we're the type of thing that's built up by knowledge. So we talked about how we can form this interior culture by these different experiences and our engagement with things in the world. But ultimately, like what sets us apart from lower creation, be it rocks or plants or animals, we have minds with which to know and hearts with which to love. And so our perfection is very much bound up with exercising those powers at their height, Mm -hmm. to their fullest extent. And this is the whole, this is the thing about virtue, is that virtue trains your desires. It actually heals and elevates them. It actually inspires and emboldens them so that you know well and better, so that you love well and better than you formerly did, but can be made to. Um, So knowledge for us is actually part of our perfection. And this is like, so St. Thomas will talk about how the image of God consists principally in intellect and will. Why? Because these are what make us most kapox day capable of God. Because God pours himself into these faculties in a peculiar way. So that Mm -hmm. in heaven, we can actually know God with his own knowledge and love God with his own love. So the very logic, the interior logic of the Trinity becomes the interior logic of us who are called up by grace to participate in that. So will it end? In a certain sense, you can't merit further. So charity is set at the time of death, and charity determines your relative entry into the beatific vision. Uh, It kind of determines, you know, how much you will enjoy that. I mean, everyone will be full, says St. Therese, but some will be thimbles and some will be buckets. So you won't, like, progress in charity once you've died. But there is still a kind of dynamism in heaven. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's character, the, the beatitude of heaven is characterized more so by the act than by the habit or by the faculty. So it's, it's a kind of continuous thing, which you recall is one of the reasons why Aristotle said that we can't have perfect happiness in this life because we like sleep and use the restroom and stuff like that, right? Uh, so, but, but it'll be wholly actualized in a way that is undying, unfading, you know, unceasing. Mm-hmm. It'll be like an eternal sunrise, says St. Augustine, wherein we will say or sing 
Amen, alleluia, and never grow weary. So it's set, but it doesn't mean that it'll be static. It doesn't mean that we'll be somehow bored by the thing after. Right, because if days. it was static, you would be bored. Eventually, for all eternity, you'd be bored. Mm. At least, I mean, if, if you didn't continue having this understanding of God, and I mean, that's what the beatific vision is. You're sitting there understanding the, the communion of persons. If you didn't get to dwell in that for a long time, for all of eternity, it would get boring, right? So, yes. So St. Thomas will talk about how the principal delight of the beatific vision is seeing God. So the principal delight is mm-hmm. a knowing, it's a loving vision, as Servais Pincares refers to it. It's, an, it's a knowing and loving of God. But there are also further delights. Like he says that in heaven you'll see the, the, de- like the divine attributes reconciled. <clears throat> so... In our experience, love and justice are different things. Yeah. Or, or, or mercy, mercy and justice, justice yeah. for instance. They're, they're different things, and they inhere in the human heart in different ways. But in God, all the attributes are identified. So his love is, or excuse me, his mercy is his justice. But for us, that's mind explosion. That, that's not mm-hmm. something around which we can wrap our heads. But in heaven, we will see those things reconciled. Another one that people really vie with is how do you reconcile God's goodness with evil in the world. Another thing that we will gaze on for all eternity, the mm-hmm. depths of which we will never sound because we can't comprehend God, but we'll continue to take deep, deep dives for all eternity in a way that leaves us wholly satisfied, but never bored. Okay, okay. so in heaven, we will have all like knowledge, you know, what we would think about knowledge here, because if we lacked any knowledge, we wouldn't, ha- we wouldn't be satisfied intellectually, and we will be satisfied in heaven. Yeah. Okay, so... Knowledge is a good to be pursued, yes. and it is found in God. Um, so, we're pursuing knowledge. Is there any? Did you before we go on to? Was there something else you wanted to ask before? No, no, no. Okay. Go, go is there any knowledge that one must be cautious in pursuing or should not pursue? Yes. Amen. Uh, so Saint Thomas will talk about the virtue of studiositas in this regard, or studiousness. And basically what he observes is that there are things which pertain to us in the order of nature and the order of grace, and then there are things which don't really. An example that he gives in one, in one case is the number of rocks at the bottom of a stream. So if you were to spend your life counting the rocks at the bottom of a particular stream and you counted it as your life as accomplished once you had numbered their total, that would be silly because there is no you know, sustenance of your family, building up of your polity, um, enrichment of your church, or glorification of God really to be found in that pursuit. So the knowledge that we are supposed to pursue is the knowledge that's saving. And that doesn't say that we neglect non-sacred sciences because what's to be found in there that's saving. So this, this is a more embracing notion of human culture than just like everyone studies theology and philosophy from 8 a.m. until 10 p.m. and then they die. Okay, <clears throat> that's a good description of the Dominican vocation. <laughs> um, so St. Thomas wants to give us kind of prudential bounds for the pursuit of knowledge because knowledge is a difficult good. Okay, so it's something that we need to be shored up in our pursuit of. It takes a virtue in order to acquire knowledge in a way that is humble but remains magnanimous. So mm. it's something that that should, you know, this is this is a, a great thing worthy of great honors, and 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 as a result of which it should stir up in us uh, great desires. But also we can go wrong, right? We can become prideful or vain or ambitious in our pursuit of knowledge, or we can go about it in the wrong way, such that it doesn't redound to God's glory or the upbuilding of our interior life. So he describes studiousness as a kind of temperate or you know, truly hopeful pursuit of knowledge as a way that accords most with our nature. And then he divines a vice 
by contrast, which he calls curiosity or curiositas. And I think it's helpful to kind of hone in on studiousness by describing curiousness and how it can go wrong. So like one thing that he says, uh, our pursuit of knowledge can go wrong if we if we consider those things less important before or prior to, not in like the temporal chronological sense, but in like the metaphysical sense, mm-hmm. prior to our consideration of what is more important. Um, so it's like great to be the absolute expert on opening gambits in chess, right? But if that consumes your life in such a way that you're like, I just, I can't go to Sunday mass because like I'm about to be the best at this, then you're, you're pursuing something of lower importance to the detriment of something of higher importance, sure. right? Another thing that he says is that we can pursue things by the wrong means. Uh, and the example that he gives is like sortilage or necromancy or sorcery, you know, mm-hmm. so that we we have it's like, I really want to know whether this person's in heaven. So let's have a seance. It's like, no, that's that's not how we verify that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and we imperil ourselves by pursuing that knowledge in that way. Uh-huh. Right. Because we're supposed to live in hope. And part of hope is not possessing the thing towards which we are geared. Uh, so, yeah. Mm. Um, another thing that I'll say is not referring our knowledge of things to God. And, and you can think of like, it's it's good to know many lovely and beautiful things, but ultimately we should see them as connected by so many vectors to the God from whom they come and to whom they ought to return. Yeah. Um, so like, it's possible to know, and you don't have to be like scrupulous about like, it's, it's good to like know how many passing yards Lamar Jackson had last week, you know, uh, because he's Lamar Jackson and he's sweet and he went to the University of Louisville. And if you're a curate at St. Louis Bertrand Parish, this is like an essential feature of your pastoral care is knowing about the fate of Lamar Jackson. But it has to be <laughs> it has to be connected to the Lord because otherwise you can end up just knowing a bunch of things and having a fragmentary life. Uh-huh. And in what does that and in what sense is that saving? You know, you are literally consumed by the trivial. Uh, so yeah, I mean, he's, he'll, he'll list different things like that that are helpful for kind of sorting out the way in which to go towards God with knowledge being uh, one of the principal, you know, virtues, because knowledge is a virtue in his understanding, Shantia, uh, principal virtues whereby we are conducted to him, but as part of a, as part of a whole life. So yeah. So I think it would be difficult to, to apply that what you just talked about because you know, you're really talking about like kind of like the custody of the mind yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. being able to keep your guardrails up and knowing like what is the end what am i supposed to be learning as a man i i think especially for men i think it's very tough to keep the custody of the mind yeah how so how, how do you keep that we're about to hit a break but how do you keep that in mind when when studying it because like dave said right when we were talking about uh, at the beginning of this episode, we can go down a lot of rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah. How do you keep the custody of the mind? Yeah. So let's introduce a thought and then pick it up later. Um, <laughs> I think uh, a good test case for this is the internet. Okay. Right. How does one use the internet? Because the internet is potentially all things. It is a very potent tool, yeah. but it's a tool that can be misused in a variety of fashions. That's mm-hmm. just to say like, yeah, you can use the internet to look at pornography because that's like base and crass, but it can also be... Uh, a bunch of blind alleys knowledge wise so yeah maybe we can come back we can pick that up yeah okay good All right. this is Catholic Man Show that Manhattan David Niles we're on the Lord's team winning side so raise your glass
And welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles here with Adam Minahan, Father Gregory Pine. We're talking about studiositas. <laughs> it's better when you pause. <laughs> studiositas. Nailed it. Not studiositas, studiositas. Yeah, I mean, it's like Notre Dame, Notre Dame. You can say whatever you want. Really? Uh, I mean, I just said that, so yeah. Okay. Yeah. My speaking, bad. Speaking makes it so. Right. Forgive me for, <clears throat> for questioning you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, we are talking about knowledge, study, curiosity. Yeah. What was it that we were talking about? What, what did we say we were going to pick back up? Uh, test case for yes. how to apply this. <clears throat> right. I suggested right. the internet. Practical application, the yeah, internet. The, the internet would be a good way to like kind of focus in on these particular insights and then begin to think of how we want how we want to apply them to our lives or how we might apply them to our lives. So I listed some some of the ways in which our pursuit of knowledge can go wrong. So things of lesser importance to the detriment of things of greater importance, uh, to go about it by the wrong means, um, to fail to refer the things that we know to God. St. Thomas lists another one when we, when we pursue things beyond our ability. Mm-hmm. Okay, So part of, basically the, the image that we're kind of formulating here is that knowledge is an arduous good worthy of pursuit because it represents a perfection for us because it's the way that we enter more and more part of the way in which we enter more and more into the divine life it's part of our perfecting it's part of our you know growth and holiness but in order to do that you need to set about it in the right way you can't just hack your knowledge life okay and any attempt to do so will often prove to your detriment uh because um yeah Quick, easy, dirty solutions, you know, like strategies or methods are often false. They're, they're, they're promises of a false salvation. No such thing as knowledge hacks. There's no such thing right. as knowledge hacks. Um, so we have to go about the work of being built up in this virtue in such a way uh, that we more and more kind of are likened unto the divine life. So, um, yeah, with respect to the Internet, I think the Internet promises you all kinds of easy knowledge. And I have a friend who makes reference often how the internet is like a modern day application of that second qualification that we oughtn't pursue knowledge in the wrong way. So when you have like a phone on the table and you're trying to have a conversation with other people, the chances of you having a substantive conversation are much lower Mm -hmm. because everyone there is crippled by the fear that something's going to come up and that your attention will be distracted and that you aren't actually present. Right. So in the pursuit of knowledge, oftentimes we're engaging with the text. Maybe we're working out in a classroom setting, but a lot of times we're working it out amongst each other. Uh, I have muddled thoughts and then I bring them to my friends and then we sort them out together dialectically. And then I come to discover what it is that I think uh, by someone else verifying for me that this may or may not be the case. Um, but if we, you know, say, say like we're in a kind of situation where we can give free reign to speculation, it's like, um, you know, what was the 18th Ecumenical Council and what did it concern? Well, like we can we can work our way there. You know, I learned a weird mnemonic, you know. Uh, so what is it? It's like Nico, FCAL, Coco, Nico, la, 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 Lu, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So um, <laughs> I can work my way to the 18th and then I can triangulate between what came before and what came after, what happened in the 17th, 18th century that's pertinent for this consideration. And then like what I'm doing is I'm, I'm lighting up all of those neurons to speak kind of like crassly and materialistically. Uh-huh, sure. And then we're also having a conversation that's entering us into a thought world that's actually bringing along a lot of things with it. Whereas if someone just pops out their phone, looks up the answer, that's that's a conversation closer. 
right? And you can like scan the Wikipedia page and say random things, but you're no longer in the same contemplative atmosphere. You're no longer in the same space as you once were. Mm. Yeah, you're consuming information. You're consuming information, exactly. You're just giving answers. But truth be told, uh, the riddles of God are more satisfying than the answers of men. So we Mm want to be like riddled together in such a way that our lives are thrown open to questions which, um, you know, like invite us further up and further in. Uh, And so the internet can oftentimes just give you the false sense that you've settled something when truth be told, what you're really desirous of is a contemplative life. What you're really desirous of is an intellectual life. And that means going about it with the books, learning how to navigate, uh, you know, like a library, even if it's just the local public library and you're navigating the kids section, right? But like to actually develop the habits of mind and heart, which make you a contemplative, which make you an intellectual, lowercase i, not like intelligentsia or like somebody who drinks tea with their finger up. Um, Thank goodness you to, didn't do that. I have not been doing that today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the internet tends to offer us all of these. And I think too, like part of being part of learning and part of knowing is being recollected. Mm-hmm. It, like there are all of these different habits that, that grow in us contemplative, a contemplative life. Uh, and the internet often proves a place where we can just escape from eight minute segments or from 15 minute segments or mm-hmm. from downtime or from time and traffic or from waiting for your rental car or whatever. But like, what if we thought about the Lord? Like, what if we just pondered our lives or pondered questions? I have one friend with whom I constantly return to thoughts, and we're, like, pinging each other to say, like, I want to talk about this the next time we're together. I want to talk about this the next time we're together. And so, like, in those times, I'm thinking about things that we have talked about previously, returning to conversations so as to enrich them the next time we're together because I look forward to those things a lot, and Mm -hmm. and I just find them especially delightful. Yeah, Um, and I'm I'm glad you said this because the Internet is this – it's this trap of – especially YouTube – Okay, there's a lot of great on YouTube, but like next thing you know, if you're not careful, you end up like I just watched two hours of fail videos, you know, (laughs) just like there's nothing immoral about what I've just done. But that's not what the virtue is. Virtue is not simply avoiding, avoiding like I didn't sin. Okay, you know, I'm not committing any sins by what I'm doing. We want to live like in a positive way, not as in simply avoiding negative things, you know, so is that really the best use of your time, you know, to achieve that ultimate virtue? You're not simply just avoiding bad things, you are doing actively pursuing good things. Um, And so that is, I mean, I can say that because I've done that, you know, I've, I've looked at the clock and say, oh man, um, I'm not sure I really enjoyed all these fail videos. Some of them were really Some funny. of them, like, yeah, some of them were funny, but, like, they, they're not enriching my life in any way. They're yeah. simply passing my life. Passing the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and I think that what we want ultimately is, you know, like, virtue. Mm-hmm. Or it's a kind of strength. It's a kind of, like, strength whereby, you know, Ulysses beats his breast and says, bear up heart, thou hast endured worse than this. It, it makes you what you were meant to be. Mm-hmm. It actually steals your nerves and girds your loins and actually sets you about the task of doing what is good and difficult and beautiful, right, mm-hmm. for the enriching of your life and the lives of those with whom you live. Um, and, and the internet has you more often than not just retreat from difficulty, right? Mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing like, I can't muster the moral energy to actually do anything constructive with this time, so I'm going to burn it. But that it's not that you like it's not just the time that's been burned, it's actually certain moral reserves in your life that have been dissipated. And you mm. now need to do the work to refortify your interior life to undertake something difficult. Because otherwise, like the sadness creeps in, the paralysis creeps in, the kind of apathy creeps in, and you come to discover that you can't do what you thought you could formally because right. you've been weakened. Yeah, and then next thing you know, you can't figure out why you're so effeminate and you're, you know, like, why am I so weak? 
uh, on things. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that... Unwilling men, to do the arduous. Yeah, yeah. Men today are more effeminate than ever simply because, you know, like I look at my life, there's very little hard things in it. Almost, no, almost, almost nothing. I go from my climate-controlled house to my climate-controlled car to my covered parking garage to my uh, comfortable office and back. And, you know, everything is so easy. And so when I finally time to study, maybe the one hard thing I do, um, it's like, oh, I just can't do this. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But we have to do it. We have to learn to do these other things. And like not going to the internet, this is a big thing. Um, I, I, have some, I have some buddies who, when in conversation, if, if a question comes out, if someone pulls their phone out, it's like, no, <laughs> don't do that. Put it away. You know, and it is a good exercise to, to have and to do so that you actually sit there and talk about things yeah. instead of just uh, be a slave to the internet and to the okay Google, you know. Well, and I think it has to, it has to, you have to have courage, right? Because you have to have this, you're going to have to have perseverance, you know, to, to continue studying and to continue working these ideas out verbally. And then mm-hmm. you also, and then there's also going to be a, a sense of what if I'm wrong? You know, what if my worldview that I have built up, you know, my life around is wrong? You know, so I think that in order to continue studying and to continue um, searching for knowledge, it does take a little a bit of fortitude or, or, or courage. Yeah, no, and, and that's like why it's helpful to go back to the passions that are concerned. What's actually at work here is hope and despair. In order to hope, you have to believe that this good is possible. It's difficult, but it's possible. Despair says it's impossible, but magnanimity girds your loins. It shores you up so that you can actually set about the task, even if it represents you being pushed to the limits. Um, And then humility guards you from the vanity or the ambition or the pride, which would undermine that pursuit and make it about you. And then studiousness is just one element of that humility, which says set about the knowing of, of good of beautiful, of true things, but in accord with your nature in such a way that the pursuit will prove uh, enriching rather mm-hmm. than depressing. You mm-hmm. know, but it, it takes hope, you know, it takes courage uh, in order to set about it. Okay, so we're going to be out of time soon. Where does this virtue of studiosi- studiousness, um, <laughs> where does it fall in line, like in the hierarchy of importance? Uh, you know, like one should pursue this over other things and you know, if it's uh, getting in, in the way of your job or in the way of, certainly you should not let it interfere with family time. You know, if you have kids at home, where, I mean, is or is it something that you should say, no, you make sure to study a little bit every day for specifically for a father is what I'm thinking. Yeah, I think that you can have an, you can have an intellectual life uh, by studying for 10 minutes each day. And I think that study is an integral feature of a healthy, happy holy Catholic home and a healthy, healthy, happy, holy Catholic man. Mm-hmm. And I think that study has to be something that pushes you. So it doesn't just mean that you read low-hanging fruit, you know, whatever the most recent, like, I don't know, uh, pulp fiction kind of like take to the beach novel is. It's like read something that's going to enrich your faith. Read something that's going to have you think. Philosophy, theology, something arduous, something good. But I think it's a scenic one. So maybe even more thinking time than reading time. I read, think so, yeah. Read and then think about what you read. Read and think, amen. Awesome. I like it. Father Gregory, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Uh, subscribe to our podcast. We're listening on radio. We have a couple questions from our Patreon that I, told, I promised we would ask you. They were ready to have, they had a long list. So subscribe to our podcast. Uh, We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. And cheers to Jesus.
What is the nature of love and why is love the end of all virtues, the greatest of God's attributes, so to speak? Um, excellent question. So the, like a lot of this comes from St. Augustine where he talks about how without love, none of the virtues are truly virtues. Uh, so love is what makes them to be virtutes vere simpliciter, true virtues simply so-called, because love conducts them to their ultimate end, their ultimate horizon. So I can be temperate for many reasons. I could be temperate for dieting purposes. I could be temperate in solidarity with somebody who has a stomach condition. I could be temperate um, because I want to fit into a tuxedo. Uh, I could, you know, it's just like it, you could do it for any number of reasons. Yeah, or because you might look, you might look good, you know, for yeah. notoriety. Exactly. Yeah, or like, or to like attract women so that I could seduce them. So I could be like temperate for the purposes of like licentiousness. Um, but when you are temperate for the love of God, right, when you fast for the love of God, it brings out the native potency of that virtue and it brings it to its term. So it actually fills, uh, you know, it's, it's St. Thomas refers to it as the form of the virtues uh, and form being that thing which kind of like fills it out or which makes it to be what it is. So the virtues are excellent. The virtues are great. The virtues are ennobling in the, in the final and ultimate sense because they conduct us into the very life of God. And that's what charity does. It makes it so that we do all things for love of God um, and we, we love with his own love, which is the very substance of Christian perfection, which is the very ambiance or atmosphere of heaven. So, yeah. Which, would, which would take it from a natural virtue to a supernatural virtue, correct? Yeah, in the case of, like, an, so blah, 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 not especially important in this regard, but yes, acquired virtues, you know, temperance, fortitude, justice, and prudence, when they are informed by charity, they have this, now the supernatural horizon. But St. Thomas thinks that you can have infused versions of those same virtues, uh, that they can coexist with the natural ones. And if it's a, you have an infused virtue, that already presumes that charity is operative because it presumes that grace is operative. Charity is tricky, though, um, because I think that oftentimes you might, you might have a virtue or you might uh, one action, one act of a virtue, but you don't feel charitable, you know, about doing it. Maybe you just feel very normal. Yeah, yeah. You know, about uh, telling the truth or something. It's not like, oh, I just feel so loving telling the truth. Um, and so, how does one know if if they do in fact possess charity in their virtue? Um, you know, it's it's, it's kind of a, maybe more of a spiritual question. Yeah. You know, the way you feel about your spiritual life or your prayer life, um, but. Is there a way one can say like, oh, maybe I don't have that, or yo, I do have that. Should I? And can you work on charity? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. like I'm going to practice being loving today. Yeah. So Saint Thomas says uh, to begin that we can't know whether or not we are in a state of grace. So grace is invisible, immaterial, and so you can't. He says we can't know that. No, we can't know. But oh. he says we can uh, detect its presence by evidential signs. So we can kind of reason back. Okay. So when you see a holy person, they do certain things which suggest that they are charitable. And we can make similar judgments with respect to ourself. And so, you know, do you enjoy praying? Or do you enjoy praying more than you formerly did? Uh, do you dispense your duties? Um, maybe we, we wouldn't say with like alacrity and zeal, but more so than you previously did. Um, do you um, <clears throat> uh, like frequent the sacraments? Do you cultivate good friendships? Do you have a habit of study? Do you mortify your flesh? Um, and it's not about how you feel about those things, but whether you do them. So wh where it really cashes out is that you show up. Um, and maybe at certain times in your life you'll find it exceedingly difficult to show up, mm -hmm. but the, it's borne out by fidelity. 
Um, so if you do the things, then it seems to suggest that the capacity for doing the things is present. And truth be told, we can do much without charity. St. Thomas says, we can plant vineyards and make roads, but nothing more or nothing of more significant consequence. So, um, yeah, also if you are afflicted, if you bear suffering well, if you have devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, those are other signs. Um, so when it comes to growing in charity or perfecting charity, we merit an increase in charity, but we ourselves are not competent to like give ourselves more charity, but by acting in what acting with the habit of charity that God has given us, um, we are predisposed to a further infusion of charity. That's not to say that it's like numerically more, but that it has a deepened or more intense hold on our life. And it kind of, yeah, it operates with a, to a wider extent, um, so yeah, basically by, by performing acts of charity that are as intense as the habit that you have uh, and more so then we are disposed to an increase in charity. But if you perform what St. Thomas calls remiss acts of charity, again, to be crass, let's say you have like 10 charity points, you know, mm-hmm. and then you, you perform an act that really only is proper to one with two charity points, then you actually, you're predisposed to like a, a loss of charity. But you're, you're not sinning, so you're not losing charity. The only thing that really cuts you off from charity is a mortal sin. But by performing remiss acts, you kind of get weak. You kind of get flaccid. Mm. More likely to... More likely to fall. To fall, and then, in fact, lose your yep. charity points, so That's to why speak. why venial sins are serious. That's why venial right. sins are serious, yeah, because yeah, they're exactly. predisposed to mortal sins. So, like, um, Gary Lagrange will talk about how at the end of her life, Our Lady was hurtling with ever greater velocity towards the heart of God's love. He, he likens her to a comet, which never, you know, no terminal mm. velocity to be experienced. She just gets, she just picks up speed. So that's like the logic of love is that it grows and redounds with ever increasing intensity. God, that had to be like the worst suffering to be on earth and have that much charity, you know, that would have like really sucked for her, I think. Yeah, that's, uh, that's One way to worthy of it. inquiry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean... But she had a knowledge that she was at the heart of God's plan for her life. Yeah. And God is present to her by essence, presence, power, and the life of grace. And perfect resignation that this is where she's supposed to be, which she would find joy in, but yet still have an ever deeper longing, because by doing the resignation, she's growing. Anyway, deep. Deep indeed. It just keeps going. Any other questions? Yeah. uh, Before we do that, that that kind of piggybacks off of your new book that you're doing with Matt Fratt. Dig. The Consecration to Mary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what, what's the title of it? I don't know. Okay, you don't know yet. Uh, TBD. I've seen it, but I've forgotten it. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. It's something about uh, entrustment to the Blessed Virgin Mary with Thomas Aquinas. I should know this. Well, you know, <clears throat> most authors don't actually write their own title. So yeah, I didn't write this one, um, but I am for it. Yes. Uh, yes. I just forget what it is. So it's a book about? It's a book. It's a nine-day preparation for consecration or okay. entrustment to mm-hmm. the Blessed Virgin Mary. With uh, passages taken from St. Thomas's writings and then theological reflections on those passages. And it's um, the idea is that it's it's like apologetic, but also, um, you know, uh, I guess contemplative. Uh, this is a longer explanation than you banked on, but four, four main types of preaching at work in the life of the church. Apologetic, like get rid of difficulties. Charismatic is, you know, preach the content of the faith. Moral, you know, for conversion. And then holy preaching is what St. Thomas calls it, which is to expose the deep mysteries of the faith. So the, the reflections are at once apologetic and sacra predicatio. So they want to kind of help you with difficulties to Marian devotion, but also exposit it as mysteries to be suffered and to be, um, yeah. Mysteries to be, to be suffered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, suffer divine things, man. That's what wisdom's about. It's deep. Dig. I've never 
I'm going to think about that later. Mm-hmm. That's that's one Did, of those. Uh, what was it that Brandon said last week or the, the other day? The burden of the abundance. burden of abundance. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. So here, here's another one. We'll do one more and then we'll, and then we'll be done. Uh, he said, talk about the relationship between sheep and shepherd, priest mm. and laity, specifically for men. What is it? What does the relationship ideally look like? And how do men support, serve priests? And what should they expect to ask for from the priest? Yeah, sheep and shepherd, priest and lady. So what is that relationship? <clears throat> um, so I think a priest is married to his church in a peculiar way. You know, like, there are different ways to describe this. But ultimately, uh, when you liken the vocation of the priesthood or religious life to marriage, the analogies tend to limp. I think ultimately a priest is married to Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the relationship that he has with the Lord is exclusive. It's permanent. Um, it is, uh, you know, faithful, fruitful, etc. Um, but then the way that grace comes into a priest's heart is modalized for the people of God. So by his ordination, he's given a kind of capacity for a supernatural generosity. So by our baptism, by our confirmation, we're given a character on our soul that disposes us to receive divine things. By his ordination, the priest is given a character on his soul to give divine things. Hmm. So he serves as a mediator between God and men. So he offers prayers and sacrifices on the part of the people, and then he gives divine things from God. So there's this ascending and descending mediation. Hmm. So a priest is supposed to be given holy to the Lord and holy to his people. He is to be poured out. Right, he is to be a kind of whole burnt offering, to use language that's more properly like appropriated for a religious state, but I think is also applicable to the priest. So the priest is supposed to be exceedingly generous, uh, but as you might imagine, that places a certain burden or it's taxing on his personality because he has to be generous in a supernatural way, which doesn't necessarily mean that he has to be like, hey, you know, like always available at every event, like high fiving and like picking up your kids and giving them a kiss on the cheek and stuff like that. It just means like he he's operating within the bounds of his personality, you know, for many of us is exceedingly limited. Um, but it's it's to be supernaturalized in a way that you can see the generosity of the Lord. And then that man's personality I mean, it's just, it's not that it disappears, uh, but it's that it becomes entirely secondary. I think Mm. a lot of priests feel the burden of like engaging everyone in a way that's super this, that, or the other thing. And it places a great strain on them personality wise. What you need to do to be a good priest is to show up and to be kind. And what that entails is to give the people, well, you have to pray because if you're not, you know, in communion with the Lord, you have nothing to say. Uh, you have to give them the sacraments for which they demand, uh, and you have to do so generously and and not resent it, you know, because for a priest, that's a temptation, especially when people aren't especially delighted about it, you know, like marriage prep. A lot of people don't really care to be in marriage prep, yeah. and then you're there for marriage prep, and then you're like, all right, what are we doing here? Um, so prayer, sacrament. A priest is to befriend his flock, not in a way that, like, he's always hanging out at your house, like, you know, eating your cheesesteaks and sipping your amaretto, um, but that he is... <laughs> You know, like he he's he's to be with you. He's to accompany you through your life, and yeah. in a way that's not especially like sexy or flashy. But he just shows he just shows up. He just continues to show up. Mm-hmm. I had a pastor in my last assignment, who, yeah, who embodied that in a way that I found exceedingly impressive. Um, and then you know he suffers on a part of the people. You know, so he the understanding is that he mortifies his flesh, uh, in a certain sense to kind of. Yeah, stay the weight of penance that would otherwise fall on the, the shoulders of his people. Uh, so a lot of these things kind of sound glorious, but the way it cashes out is usually pretty mundane. 
Um, so what do you expect from your priest? I think you expect from him the sacraments. You expect from him preaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, you hope for good preaching, but you don't necessarily expect it, right? And then you expect from him some Christian instruction. So it should be in the mysteries of the faith and in the moral life. Um, and the extent to which he's able to do that uh, is often circumscribed by his personality, but you should be able to, you should have eyes with which to see how the Lord uh, is working, how the Lord is like giving him grace that's for you, irrespective of whether or not you like him or whether he's a pain or whether he's great, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we can kind of kill a priest by our resentment that he isn't according to our spec, but what we should ask from him is that he gives us God. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with everything you just said. I would expect orthodoxy from a priest, but there is a pressure these days to like, oh, make sure you're engaging, you know, like, I think it's it's nice if a, if a priest is there on Sunday welcoming people as they come in the door, but I don't think that a priest ha- has to or needs to do that. Um, I would he, rather them be in the confessional, hearing confessions before Mass. R- right, before mass, I mean... Personally, but... I, I would too, but there is like, I don't know, there's a lot of competition with Protestant churches who are super, in, you know, like, oh, free cappuccinos for every, we have like a whole, we have 30 people who come and get, refill your cappuccinos in your seat. You know, like, it, that is a, there's a lot of competition there. And I think priests feel that pressure. Um, one thing I heard about the relationship between priest and the, specifically shepherd and the flock, uh, this old lady I think this this is actually a, a Protestant example, but it's okay. It works. Uh, went up to the pastor after service one Sunday and said, "We need more, we need more sheep here in this flock." And he looked at her and said, "Shepherds don't make sheep. Sheep make sheep." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yes, that is true. That is a good example. Um, how it's it's our call to make more sheep. Yeah, I can also say just one other thought is the thing that I appreciate most is when people fast for me. Hmm. Um, yeah, certain things only come out, certain demons only come out by prayer and fasting. Um, and I, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. I mean, when people pray for me, that's huge. When people offer masses for me, that's doubly so. But when people fast for me, for whatever reason, I just feel very consoled by that and encouraged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because fasting, that's hard. I mean, praying for people is great, but it's, in many ways, it's kind of cheap. I mean, you could you can pray for anybody, and you should pray for you should pray for people. But that's a real easy thing to do, as opposed to like. I'm. I'm not gonna eat. I'm skipping a meal today. today you know, you. like I don't know. That's a. It's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And I think priests have to have the courage to ask for the parishioners to pray and you know make sacrifice for them because Satan wants all of us to go to hell, but he especially wants priests to go to hell because when they do, it scandalizes people in, in great numbers. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it's serious. Father Gregory Pine, thank you for being here today. Hey, man, my joy. Thanks for having me. You want to end on your blessing? With a pleasure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Dig. Grab some...